here I was getting a Bible class for the first time in my life, and we had just started going to church that same year, so some of this might blend in with Sunday school at you know Community Bible Church, but I remember wondering why all of the lamb killing and the blood, because I didn't grow up hearing about it until I was eight years old, and then it was you know, it was bloody. It, it was kind of shocking to my senses as a third grader, as an eight-year-old. I, I, and then you start reading through the Bible in a year. I got into high school, and I was committed to doing this, and I could never make it through the book of Leviticus. It was just like you, you hit between the, 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 all of the genealogies and all of the repetition of the, the sacrifices and the this, this priestly language that's so foreign to anything I knew, I just, it was just like a nosedive, right? You're just, you, it's like the airplane runs out of gas and is just coasting and it's just a matter of time. You're never finishing the book of Leviticus and getting to the book of Numbers. And if you've done it, good on you. Yes, that's wonderful that you made it through in reading the Bible in a year. I do commend reading the Bible in a year and I commend reading all of it. Um, there's some other plans where you read a little bit of old, a little bit of new, a little bit of Psalms, a little bit of Proverbs. That's a little easier than just starting in Genesis 1-1 and, you know, hitting the ground running. So, all of that to say that when we see here in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10, this language of redemption through the blood of Jesus, we get so used to talking about it that Sometimes it doesn't shock us like, like maybe it should. I, I, I think of, you know, I, I worked in the oil refineries for many years, and some of you still do. And I remember when there was that big oil spill in the Gulf, and they were trying to clean it up, and there was a reclamation effort where this oil spill had gone wrong, and they're trying to make it right again and there it's all hands on deck and they're trying to encircle the the oil on the top of the water and bring it in and then do you remember that time in the gulf where a pipe underground burst and it was just dumping crude oil into the gulf and they didn't even know what they were going to do um there there's been these situations where uh, even at the oil refinery where something happens either they've run it uh, too long and something breaks and there's an emergency and they're trying to recover uh, or there's a spill that they have to, to clean up and, and reclaim or something like that, there, that it's quite obvious when things go wrong. And we know it out there because the alarms go off. And we know that there's the alarms that aren't as serious and then there's the big alarm that's very, very serious. Well, in our lives, this reclamation effort that God is undertaking, most of us prior to Jesus had no concept that there was even anything wrong, that there, there had been a mess, that there needed to be a reclamation, that there needed to be a redemption. But this language of the Son going on a redeeming mission for a people, it's a language that's covered and coated in blood. And I don't say that to be dramatic, uh, to be graphic. I can do that at times. I'm not trying to do that here. It's just, it's, it should be shocking to our senses. Why does it take 
for me to be made right with God the death and blood of another. That's pretty drastic. That's pretty incredible. And in the Old Testament, it was the the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, and it covered sin for a year, but it couldn't take away the problem. And every year they had to keep offering these animals. And when Jesus came, He came once for all, and we're going to talk about that. But let's let's read this passage here, just from verses 7 to 10. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. I read from the New American Standard there, which didn't match the slides, if you were wondering, the English Standard Version. But, it, but, but what we're going to see is that in verse 7, in Christ there is redemption and forgiveness. And we sing about these words all the time. We talk about these words all the time. They were running through the first three songs that we sang. Redemption. What, what is this redemption? In Him we have redemption. Redemption is central to Christianity. And B.B. Warfield, uh, one of the Princeton scholars who, uh, of the 1800s, said, there is no one of the titles of Christ which is more precious to Christian hearts than Redeemer. Redeemer is the name specifically of the Christ of the cross. Whenever we pronounce it, the cross is placarded before our eyes and our hearts are filled with loving remembrance. Not only that Christ has given us salvation, but that He paid a mighty price for it. See, that's the remarkable thing about redemption. Redemption implies, or at least has as a foundation, this reality that we are in bondage and have to be purchased out of it. It's very specific language of a slave market. That we're enslaved to something and somebody had to redeem us and purchase us out of that slavery so that we could be free. Now that's humbling, isn't it? That's not pleasant to hear because we don't want to be told that we're in bondage to something. After all, we're Americans. We're free. We're not in bondage to anything. Well, the Scripture says we're in bondage to our sin. In fact, Paul's going to make this same argument in chapter 2. But what it's like is, it's like if you've ever been to a, a, a driven by a prison, maybe on Highway 5, Interstate 5 as you're going down, and you see these beautiful trees, and what you don't see concealed under the branches is the razor wire that keeps everybody in. This picture that, oh, we appear to be fine on the outside, but our real condition is imprisonment to our own sin nature. Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote one of his classic works, The Bondage of the Will, in response to Erasmus, who was a Renaissance humanitarian who said the will is unaffected by sin. And Luther says, on the contrary, it's in bondage to sin so that everything we want to do is sin. So the problem, the Bible says that we're in the domain of darkness and the, and the problem that we have, one of the problems is, is who we serve. And because we serve a master that's not Jesus prior to our conversion, 
were under bondage. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 1. You were, you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. What an incredible verdict, diagnosis of the condition. Paul says we were in bondage to our sin. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. So we didn't have any life and we were serving Satan, the prince of the power of the air. I remember being at UC Davis. My first year there, I was a junior in college. I walk onto campus. I'm in this beautiful quad area. It's the first week. It's, it's back to school week. There's all these people, you know, free food and all this stuff. Well, all these credit card companies were there too. And I'm 20 years old, the height of wisdom. And they say to me, we will give you a free T-shirt if you sign up for this credit card. And I'm thinking, they're giving me a free T-shirt. That's amazing. And then they give me this, this credit card. You know, praise the Lord, they only gave me like a $500 limit on it because I was a college kid. But it put me in the domain of debt immediately. Because do you think I had any discipline as a 20-year-old? 20 20 year no. I was like, I got 500 bucks to burn. What can I buy it on? I don't even remember what I spent it on. Probably food. Like, probably not wisdom. Put me in the domain of debt. This, this idea of our actions, our life apart from Christ, the sin that we commit, the disobedience to God, it puts us in this domain of darkness, according to Scripture. Dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, of course, you who believe the gospel know this, and, and I'm not trying to convince you you're that way now because what was the language Paul used? You were dead. You formerly walked that way, but you're not that way anymore. Why? Because verse 4 of chapter 2, God being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Isn't that incredible? Paul, he, he's wanting to rehearse the Son's redeeming mission that the Son came to accomplish something. He came to purchase us, to redeem us out of the domain of darkness and bring us into His kingdom, to raise us up with Him. He goes on to say in verse 5 that we were seated, verse 6, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come, the Father might continue to reveal His grace and kindness towards us in Christ. And in that, that phrase, the ages to come, it was used in extra biblical literature at the time to talk about waves hitting a seashore, one upon another upon another, the coming waves uh, hitting the seashore. And, and Paul pictures eternity like going to the Pacific Ocean, sitting on the beach, watching the waves roll in one after the other after the other, but instead of water coming in, instead of everything from the sea coming in, it's the Father revealing His grace and kindness to us in Christ Jesus for all eternity. This is what we have in Christ. This is what the Son came to accomplish, His redeeming mission. What Jesus provided for this problem of slavery was a redemption. He bought us out of slavery, and the price He paid was His own blood. He died in our place. So that we didn't have to die 
That's incredible love. That, that is something that not all of us would do. It's something that we definitely romanticize, don't we? we? We hold it up in the highest regard in movies. That the hero of the story would sacrifice his life for others. Because we know it is an incredibly loving thing to do. It's an incredibly honorable thing to do. What kind of love that someone would lay down his life for his friends? But this is the incredible love of the cross, is that Jesus laid down his life for his enemies. Those who are in the domain of darkness. Those who are in bondage. It's why in Revelation 5, they sing a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals because you were slain. And you purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And this isn't just the God of the New Testament. This isn't just, you know, Jesus, God the Son, who's the God of love, who did this. This has been the Father's heart from all eternity. We heard it in Psalm 103. I'll give you another example. Hosea. Do you remember the book of Hosea in the Old Testament? Let, let's turn over to, to Hosea. Right after the book of Daniel. Chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord which came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, during the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, for the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Now, now they end up having three kids, and then Gomer leaves Hosea and commits adultery. And even in the text, there's this wondering if all of the kids are Hosea's. But in chapter 3, verse 1, the Lord says to me, to Hosea, Go again and love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. I feel like I have to explain raisin cakes because you're wondering what's so bad about raisin cakes. Well, raisin cakes were thought to be, they were uh, an aphrodisiac. So they were part of the, the, it's what the prostitutes used to, to give to the, their clients so that they would, uh, it was the little blue pill of the Old Testament. So God says, go and love this woman that's committed adultery and go buy her back out of slavery and take her back to yourself. And he says this explicitly, because this is how I've loved my people. This is how I've loved my people. Think about this, this blessed truth. God tells Hosea, you go back and you buy your wife off the auction block because this is what I'm going to do with my son is I'm going to buy you off the auction block of sin and slavery to sin because I love you and I'm committed to you. If we were to turn to the book of Ruth, we see this other, uh, this other truth about the the Gael, the kinsman redeemer in the book of Ruth. And, and a Gael, a kinsman redeemer, had to have three qualities. One, they had to be related to the one needing redemption. And Boaz was a near kinsman to Ruth. And of course, in the story, there's someone closer who 
could have bought her back. The second qualification is that the Redeemer needs to be able to pay the price. And Boaz was wealthy. He could pay the price. And the third was that he had to be willing to do so. And that's where we see the nearer kinsman Redeemer, the nearer Gael, was not willing to buy Ruth. And so Boaz was. And this picture, of course, of our kinsman Redeemer who he's related to us. He became a man and added a human nature to himself forever. He had to be like us in all ways yet without sin. And he was able to pay the price for our sin because he's God. And he's able to pay an eternal, infinite crime against an infinitely holy God because his blood is sufficient. And third, he had to be willing to do so. And that's what we see gloriously talked about throughout the Bible is that Jesus came. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. He redeemed us by His blood. It's why we sing the song, I will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung Him on that judgment tree. But we glory in Him. Because He is our Redeemer. Back to Ephesians 1. And it says it is, He has redeemed us through His blood. Verse 7. Through His blood. Uh, Paul in Romans 5.9 says, Since therefore we've been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 that we were ransomed from our futile ways inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb, without blemish or spot. We were far off, and we've been brought near by the blood of Christ. And it's not once a year. It's once forever, once for all. His blood is sufficient to pay the price. And that's really good news, isn't it? Because this week, you and I sinned. We broke God's law this week. And if we were under the blood of a lamb or a bull, we would have to then go up and offer another lamb or bull. But Jesus paid once for all. And so in our sin, we don't have to go offer another sacrifice. We need to simply repent and confess and remind ourselves of everything Jesus did for us and he's our high priest who's interceding for us everything we heard in first John and this redemption has another implication in verse 7 in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses so so you might say what do we get when we get bought out of sin and we get brought into the kingdom of Christ. Well, here he says, here's what we have is we have the forgiveness of our trespasses. They're forgiven. And it's according to the riches of the Father's grace. Forgiveness means a canceling of a debt and removing of a penalty. You would love for your debt to be forgiven, wouldn't you? I would love mine to be forgiven. Just go ahead and cancel it. That, that handwriting of requirement that's on my Buick, you could just forgive it. It'd be great. And this is what the Father has done in Christ. As he says, that handwriting of requirement, as Colossians says, that, that, that is th which is against you here. Your trespasses, they've been forgiven in Jesus. 
They've been forgiven. That means your father doesn't look at you and see your sin anymore. He looks at you and sees the righteousness of his son. Because at the cross, when he looked at his son, he didn't see his righteousness, he saw your sin. And nailed it to the cross. This will get you up in the morning. Especially after you've been sinning. We have a Savior who is sufficient to save and He's saved us entirely and He's our Redeemer. He bought us. He loved us. We have forgiveness of sins. Let me just read off a few. I know I've read this list before. It's a favorite list that I've compiled. Psalm 103 that we read today. God removes our sin as far as the east is from the west. Isaiah 118. He completely cleanses us from the stain of our sin. Man, we have so many products out there that offer to clean your clothes, all the stains out of them. And it never works. Not even OxyClean. God says, I'm going to completely cleanse you from the stain of your sin. What a thought. Don't we carry our, the past around and think it's like a stain and a blot and a blemish on our lives? Here, Scripture says God completely cleanses us from the stain of our sin. God throws our sins behind His back, Isaiah 38, 17. Literally places it between, in, his, in the middle of His back. You know that part where you can't itch? The older I get, that space gets bigger and bigger. It, it just, you know what I mean? Like, I can't reach it. It just doesn't happen. God, who doesn't have a back, by the way, it's a metaphor, He's placing it in the location where he will never see it again. It's behind his back. In the middle of his back. And he purposefully puts our sins there. Jeremiah 31, 34, God remembers our sins no more in the new covenant. The God who doesn't forget anything, who knows all things, chooses to remember our sins no more. By the way, a bit of marriage advice, a bit of parenting advice, practice that. Isn't that incredible? That if we, if we would look to the gospel and we would see that our Father remembers our sins no more and doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, wouldn't that be a great motivator to look at our spouse and say, I'm not going to remember the sins you committed against me. I'm not going to bring them up over and over and over again. Like that great theologian Garth Brooks saying, you know, bury the hatchet and leave the handle sticking out. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to remember, choose not to bring it up before you and before God and before myself. That's what forgiveness is. Isn't that an incredible thought? That forgiveness is saying, I'm not going to bring up the offense before you anymore, you who sinned against me. I'm not going to bring it up before myself to sort of stew in it and have a root of bitterness form and i'm not going to bring it up to god i'm going to choose to remember it no more micah 7 19 god treads our sin underfoot he crushes it underfoot and i think that language is going back to genesis 3 where this seed of the serpent is crushed by the seed of the woman 
Jesus crushes the head of the serpent and kills our sin. And God here is making an allusion back to that and saying, I'm crushing your sin under my feet. I'm treading it underfoot. And in that same verse, he casts it into the depths of the ocean. The ocean floor, the place where it could never be brought up again. I know they found the Titanic. I know there were new pictures this week. Most amazing three-dimensional imaging of the Titanic. The picture of the metaphor is that God's placing it in the deepest part of the oceans where it'll never be brought up again. It's good news. This is what God has done with our sins because of the finished work of His Son, Jesus. And that's why Paul says it's according to the riches of His grace. The Father's grace. His vast riches. We have redemption, present tense, ongoing state, currently possessing it, redemption and forgiveness because of the Father's vast riches of His grace towards us. Undeserved favor. This is our Father in heaven. Can I I just say that when you sin and you are tempted to pull away from your Father in heaven and think that you have to clean yourself up or make yourself right before you could ever come back to His presence, ever pray to Him, or, or ever come back to church, that is a lie from the devil. If you're believing in Jesus, you are clean. You are redeemed. You are forgiven. And you don't have to clean yourself up to come back into the Father's presence. It's according to the riches of His grace. He says it over and over and over. We heard it last week. To the praise of His glorious grace. We're going to hear it again in verse 10. To the praise of His glorious grace. Paul could have said to the praise of His glory, which would have been true, but he says, no, it's to the praise of His grace. And oh, by the way, His grace is glorious. There's no other grace like it. You and I don't extend grace like this. Oh, we think we might. I'm so gracious. I'm such a gracious father. Ask my children. (laughs) No, we don't extend grace like this. Not like our Father in heaven so in christ there is redemption and forgiveness and we got to move on verses 8 to 10 in christ there's also wisdom to understand reality and these are tied together satan would love to convince you of a different reality than what god is going to say right here satan would love to convince you that you're still in your sins that your father in heaven is against you that the son's death was not enough, his blood wasn't sufficient, and that the father has, is, you're just one sin away from outsinning the grace of God. And one sin away from him kicking you out of the family. One sin away and being out of the will. Because that's how human fathers are. But what does Paul say? Verse 8, the father he lavished on us this the riches of His grace, in all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will. So in Christ, there's wisdom to understand reality is how I'm saying it. The Father's will, the Father's plan for all of history. The Father is lavishing it upon us, it says in verse 8. And He gives us 
all wisdom and insight to make known this mystery. In other words, it's generously provided in verse 8. One of the biggest acts that, we, that, that I've seen someone do is in adoption, one of our elders at Calvary adopted a child that was both physically and developmentally disabled with both Down syndrome and autism from the Ukraine. And watching uh, Ryan and Janae raise this child, Vika, you know, it sounds romantic. It sounds like what an incredible act. It was an incredibly difficult trial. The, the, the background of the child causes many problems and, and tax them in, in many different ways, but I saw them over and over and over again offer themselves to someone to whom they owe no obligation or debt. They were not obliged or indebted to fly over to another country to go into an adoption agency and to an adopt a child there. They gave themselves to reclaim this child, as it were, purely for her good. The grace that provides redemption in Jesus, God says He's lavished it upon us. He was under no obligation. He was under no debt. Yet He gave His own Son to reclaim and redeem us so that we would be adopted into His family. And it is for our good and His glory. Lavish. Overflowing. Not stingy. Uh, how many times have we believed that the Father in heaven, when we pray to Him, it's like He's stingy. Like we got to twist His arm. You know, we got to nag Him enough that He'll finally give in like a human father. And then when He does give us, He, he doesn't trust us, and so He's giving us sparingly because He knows we're going we're gonna to abuse His grace. We're going we're gonna to take advantage of His grace. We're going to sin again. No, He's lavish in His grace. Overflowing in His grace. And it says, with all wisdom and insight, He makes known to us the mystery of His will. Think about this. The benefits of our redemption, all of the things we get in redemption, they would have no effect on our hearts if we didn't know them. Yet God has made known to us the mystery of His will. This is why we preach the Bible. This is why we read our Bibles. This is why we disciple. This is why we, we are so committed to this Word of God because here is where we see the Father's plan unfold. The, the riches of His wisdom, the mystery of His will, the, according to His good pleasure that He purposed in His Son. God has made known this mystery not just to a select few, but to all His children. There aren't gurus in the Christian life that have the secrets. This isn't like an 80s B-rate kung fu flick that has the secret arts on a scroll that you have to go figure out. My dad and I watched a lot of kung fu flicks in the 80s. That was, that was one of the highlights of my teenage years was Friday nights we'd stay up till 3 a.m. watching B-rate kung fu flicks. I don't even remember what channel it was. It was fantastic. 
But they all had the same story, right? There was, you know, some master that had this secret technique and, and then the, you know, his students all get killed because some bad guy robbed, you know, comes in and destroys them. And then some nobody off the street learns the techniques from the master and then go seeks revenge. I mean, Kung Fu Panda, Wushi Finger. I mean, it's the same thing. Christianity doesn't have this guru idea that the mystery of the 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 mystery of God, the, the mystery of his will is only known to a select few. No, it's known to all of us. It's known to all of us, and it's been made known in his word, in the finished work of his son. It was once hidden, but now revealed, Paul says in Colossians 1. And he does this. Why does he do it? Because it brings him good pleasure. Verse 9. The kind intention which he purposed in him. There's no qualifications or conditions for receiving this wisdom. The Father delights to show mercy to the undeserving. He's loved us and he's enabled us to know his love. In fact, Paul says that's one of the major ministries of the Spirit in Romans 5 is to make the Father's love shed abroad in our hearts. So that by the time we get to chapter 8, we cry out, Abba, Father. And this is what the Father, it's His kind intention, His good pleasure that He purposed in Jesus. The Father's purpose to bring about redemption in Jesus was from eternity past. And He revealed it at the high point of the ages to His children. It never could have been unraveled by human ingenuity or study. We never would have come up with this idea. And then he says this interesting thing in verse 10. With a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ. You have your Bible translation might talk about the dispensations of the fullness of time. If you have the King James or um, if you have the ESV as a plan for the fullness of times to sum up all things in Christ. Paul's talking about this not only the, the purposes of God, but the steps by which He will take it happen. How He will administer His plan and work out His plan. His purpose is to unite under one head all things in Jesus. Things in heaven and things on earth. And His administration refers to the manner in which He's working it out. What's your plan, God? I'm going to redeem out of every nation, tribe, people, and tongue through the finished work of my son. And I'm going to do it in such a way that he dies and is buried and rises again. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's Lord. So everything in heaven and everything on earth will confess that Jesus is Lord. And everything is going to be handed over to him. He's going to receive and inherit all things. Well, how are you going to work it out? Well, that's my administration, how I work it out suitable, fitting, for the fullness of times to bring the most glory to Jesus at the high point of the ages. And that's what Paul's talking about here. When the time was ripe for his coming, we had some bananas uh, that we got from Costco that would not ripen. We went to Paris and came back and they finally, we thought they were ripe. I'm not sure that they were. These were like weird bananas that never went, like, like if they would have been perfect it would have been great but they were not ripe so i tried to peel one and you know how that goes it just it's no good they almost were like plantains 
instead of bananas. But I don't even know why I said that, because I used the word ripe. When the time was ripe, as it were, for the coming of Jesus, the fullness of time, the Father sent the Son at the high point of the ages 2,000 years ago. It was perfectly, exactly the right time. In fact, one of the things we like to talk about in New Testament uh, survey class is all of the, the circumstances around Jesus' birth. So the Greek, Greek was the common language of the people. And Greek is a very precise language that was perfectly suited to write the New Testament and reveal the Gospel. We like to talk about the Roman roads so that the Gospel, as it advanced, the Roman roads were able for Paul and the apostles to take the Gospel to the ends of the known world very easily, very quickly. We talk about the Roman courier system with letters, and so even the writing of the New Testament was able to spread very quickly because of the infrastructure of the Roman Empire. Also the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, that existed at the time of Jesus meant there were no wars inside of Rome. All the wars were outside its borders, which again was an opportunity for the Gospel to thrive. All of those circumstances combined together to show that 2,000 years ago was the administration of God at the perfect time, at the high point of the ages, sending His Son to die for our sins and for that Gospel to spread around the world and to get to Benicia 2,000 years later. The other side of the planet. By the way, when the time is suitable again, ripe again, The high point again, He's going to send His Son to come back to make all things new. And we're waiting for that. Now, this fullness of the times, uh, uh, He did this to unite under one head all things in Christ. That is to sum up everything in Jesus. The universe has come into chaos as a result of sin, and God will restore it to its original harmony in Christ. This also means there will be no corner of the world, no feature of heaven where Jesus' rule does not extend. He's Lord. R.C. Sproul used to say, there is no maverick molecule in the universe. There's no molecule doing its own thing. Everything is ordered by the Father. Not even maverick in Top Gun is really maverick. (laughs) Things in heaven and things on earth That is, the things in heaven, in the book of Ephesians, as we're going to see, are these heavenly powers that are rebellious to Jesus. Chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, the prince of the power of the air. Uh, Christ wins a decisive victory over them. Chapter 1, verses 19 to 22. He says, uh, He seated Christ, verse 20, at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that's named. And the are the powers that we fight against in chapter six when we put on our armor of God. He says that we battle, uh, verse eleven, put on the armor of God so you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Chapter six, verse eleven. Now, verse twelve. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against powers, against world forces of this darkness, against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So Paul is bringing this up and saying that things in heaven are subject to Jesus. He's over them all. 
And by the way, Jesus was seated above them, chapter 1, verse 19. You're battling against them. You used to be in their grasp, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. But now in your fight, chapter 6, they're defeated foes. Why? Because Christ has been seated above them, and he also says you've been seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. Because we've been united to Jesus. So we can put on the armor of God and stand firm in the day of temptation. Paul has a very practical purpose for talking about this. This isn't just academics. This isn't just theology proper class and the decree. This is the plan of God to bring about redemption. And he wants you to know that today, tomorrow morning when you wake up and you battle against the temptations and the evils of Satan and his minions, that they're defeated foes because Christ is above them. And you've been seated in the heavenlies in Christ. And you can stand firm. And then things on earth. The church. Christ, uh, we see in chapter 1 and into chapter 2, overcoming the alienation of Jew and Gentile with one another and both of them between God. We were in a terrible situation as we saw in chapter 2 before salvation. We've been delivered from bondage. And both of us, Jew and Gentile, have been reconciled so that by the time we get to chapter 2, verse 18, through Jesus, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access in one spirit to the Father. So these things on earth that are under Jesus, including the church, including us, one of the benefits is that we now have access to the Father. The, the holy place has been open wide. So that we don't have to, you know, knock at the right time. We don't have to, to, you know, make an appointment. We don't have to schedule a Teams meeting and do a virtual conversation. We can come to the very presence of our Father in heaven anytime we want. Because in the Spirit, through the finished work of the Son, we have free, confident access to the one who planned all of this. The universe that has come into chaos, God is restoring it into harmony. And in Ephesians chapter 3, both spheres, heaven and earth, are put together with the people of God. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. To bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, same thing he had talked about in chapter 1, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So think about this. Part of God's plan is that He's going to use us as the church to preach, as it were, by our very lives to the rulers and authorities, Satan and his minions, that they're defeated foes. So all they can do is rage. They can tempt. They can deceive. They can lie. They can accuse us. But we have a Redeemer. We have a Savior who's seated at the right hand of the Father. And the Father, through the church, is revealing His manifold wisdom and proclaiming it to these rebellious rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. We win. They lose. Christ is going to make all things new. The existence of the church is a reminder that the authority of the powers has been broken and their final defeat is coming. One last thought. 
part of this obligation that the Father is revealing it through the church is that we are on mission. Not only proclaiming to the demonic forces that their doom is sure, as Martin Luther sang, in a mighty fortress is our God, but also to this world that there is a Redeemer. We have a mission as ambassadors, 2 Corinthians 5, to say there is a Redeemer who will completely cleanse you from the stain of your sin and bring you into His kingdom. It also means on a personal level that we need to confess our sins to one another and forgive one another. If we've been forgiven in this way, we must forgive. We can't hold on to bitterness. We can't hold on to unforgiveness. At a church level, this means reconciliation with one another, overcoming all barriers, whatever they would be. Paul's going to talk in chapter 2 about racial barriers of Jew and Gentile. He, James talks about economic barriers in James chapter 1. We could talk about educational differences, regional prejudices, theological pride. Whatever it is, Jesus brings reconciliation to those things. At a world level, redeeming the whole of life for the glory of God in Christ. However that would be. Through your job through your hobbies in the arts, through uh, education and science and whatever it would look like. It's, it's why we, we don't want to, you know, I, I know I've said this to you a couple times that as a church plant, we don't want to be here and if we're gone in a generation for Benicia, the city of Benicia to never even miss us or know that we were gone. We want to see the reconciling, redeeming work of Christ have an impact in our community. So I praise the Lord for your efforts. I pray for this lasagna love that popped up spontaneously and is now flourishing through this ministry to the, to the elderly, the, the senior center that's now flourishing. Robin sent me an amazing email this week about everything going on, and I'm so encouraged. These are the kind of things that they don't make splashy headlines uh, in terms of our influence, but it's laying up treasure in heaven. It's, it's being about this mission uh, that, the, that, that we're saying there's a Redeemer and there's a reason we're doing this is because we are now in a different kingdom. We have different priorities. We have different uh, things that are important to us. We love people more than we love ourselves now because Christ loved us more than <laughs> He laid down His life. He came to serve. We're to be salt and light in every place and part of the father's plan saying everything is summed up in christ means that all of it belongs to jesus benicia belongs to jesus we belong to jesus whether we believe in him or not we belong to him every knee will bow abraham kuyper a dutch pastor said there's not one square inch of this world in which jesus does not stand and say this is mine mine it also gives us great courage, I think, in this mission. That we're about our Savior's business, our Redeemer's business. This is what He wants to do. And this is what He wants us to do. He's the head of the church. We're His body. And it's through the church this message is proclaimed. So, what a glorious thought. We're going we're gonna to talk about our Savior some more in communion. We're going to sing. This is what we rehearse every week. And I hope that it doesn't get old. It never should, because 
we are desperately in need of a Redeemer. And this is what the same Son not only came to accomplish, it's what He has accomplished. And the reason you and I are still a Christian today is because of Jesus. Not because of us. It's not because we're so great. It's not because we're so obedient that we're just, man, God made a really good choice when He chose us. That's not it at all. The reason we're still believing and we're still a Christian is because our Redeemer has set His affection upon us. And the Father hasn't left us alone. He poured out a Spirit. We're going to look at the Spirit next time. The Spirit's assuring seal that the Spirit is the down payment and pledge of our inheritance. And He's the one who's conforming us into the image of Christ by His grace through faith. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this Word and this time. What an incredible mystery made known. What an incredible plan. We sang it. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the King. Father, would You do a work through us and in us. May Your priorities, may our Redeemer's priorities become our priorities. We can be so easily tempted away by the things of this world, so swayed. We need to see the sufficiency of our Savior. We need to get a glimpse of this over and over. We need to be reminded of what ultimate reality is because this world is selling us an alternative reality. A reality that says we're going to find our pleasure in the, the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life and it never satisfies it always ends up bitter. But ultimate reality is your plan that you are administering and working out in your Son to put all things under His feet. And we're a part of it. Give us eyes to see it. Encourage your children. Encourage them as they wake up tomorrow and face their trials and the world and the work that they do. Would you remind them of who they are in Jesus? And the kingdom that they're in, they're no longer in the domain of darkness. They're no longer enslaved. They're now set free in Christ because they have a glorious Redeemer. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.